You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Syl Sobel and Jay Rosenstein, the authors of Boxed Out of the NBA, Remembering the Eastern Professional Basketball League. Syl and Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad, glad to be here, Paul. Um, I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourselves. Uh, Syl, why don't you why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, Well, I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which will become more significant as we start talking about the book in the Eastern League. Um, Went to Georgetown University, uh, worked as a newspaper reporter for a number of years in Scranton and in uh, Binghamton, New York. Uh, Went to law school, University of Wisconsin, practiced law for a few years after that in Washington, D.C., and then spent 30 years uh, with the federal government for a, an agency called the Federal Judicial Center as an attorney and writer and eventually director of the publications division. Um, always been interested in writing. I started writing children's books uh, on U.S. history and government um, when uh, my daughters were quite young in uh, first grade and kindergarten. First book I wrote was called How the U.S. Government Works. And I've written titles on the Constitution, Bill of Rights, presidential elections. But I always wanted to do more with writing and write, you know, longer, more um, um, uh, adult, not adult oriented, but books for uh, larger audiences. And uh, decided that I wanted to retire a few years early, retired uh, five years ago, so I could devote time to uh, writing some books that uh, had been, you know, kicking around my mind for a while. Uh, and this is the first one, which uh, I co-authored with uh, my best friend from Scranton, Jay. So uh, he could tell you a little bit about himself, too. Thank you, Syl, and thank you, Paul. Uh, yeah, I'm Jay Rosenstein from Scranton, PA. Uh, Syl and I have known each other for, what, uh, 60 years, pretty much? Pretty much. Uh, we, yeah, kindergarten. Our, yeah, since kindergarten. And um, we uh, went to the to, uh, same grade school together, but uh, I went to a different high school than Syl. Um, and then we reunited at Georgetown. And um, uh, I, uh, I uh, after Georgetown, I um, got a job as a reporter for a daily financial newspaper based in New York. I worked in the Washington Bureau. It's called uh, American Banker. A, uh, not a newsletter, but a newspaper, daily newspaper, um, about uh, you know banking issues. And I worked there as a writer and editor for 12 years. And then I went uh, and switched to join the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, as a uh, senior writer and editor there. Did, did that for 31 years. And um, I also had thoughts about um, wanting to write books and 
that's one reason I retired from that job, but uh, about eight months ago. And um, so I've, uh, in addition to to the book uh, with Sil- uh, with Sylvan, I've uh, I'm, I'm working on a kids book. But anyhow, um, um, yeah, I think that pretty much sums things up. Gotcha. So, Sil, how did this project come about? Well, as I said a number of people really it's something jay and i've been talking about our whole lives uh we grew up in scranton together as huge fans of the eastern league uh our dads took us to games when we were young kids about seven eight years old and we immediately fell in love with it we just became huge fans i mean seeing these really talented basketball players up close scranton catholic youth center uh, these were pro athletes, uh, and they were our idols and our heroes. So Jay and I, you know, would go with our dads or uh, with each other to uh, to the basketball games every weekend uh, through school and high school. Um, talked about it when we were in college together, and even afterwards, you know, when long after the Eastern League had left, we'd always go back to talking about the Eastern League. And said, you know, someday we, we got to write a book about this. And about three years ago, we said, all right, well, you know, someday is now. Let's start writing this book. And uh, it really was a labor of love. It's it's just something we've always, always loved, always enjoyed, and always meant a lot to us. And uh, Jay will tell you his family had some connections with the Scranton team owner, and that got us going. Uh, sure. Uh Paul, I'd like to just you know mention up front uh, uh, with the uh, uh, what Sylvan said. Yes, we talked about writing a book on the Eastern League for years, and we kept putting it off for one reason or another. Most of the time, it was because we both had full time jobs. Um, and because of that, though, we we have had one big regret that we didn't start sooner or weren't able to start sooner on the researching and writing of the book because. In all these these years that passed by, we we lost many of the great players and coaches and, and refs uh, during that those years. Uh, people we really wanted to interview and so on. Uh, people whose stories really had to be told. Um, so that that's a a, a a big regret. And actually, as for example, we we have lost many great um, officials, players, and so on in just. The last year, John Cheney, the the uh, uh, coach of uh, Temple, Howie Landa, Richie Cornwall, great player originally out of uh, Syracuse. And most recently, as as Sil said, uh, Arthur Pactor. Arthur Pactor was the uh, Scranton owner for like twenty years. Uh, players loved him and so on. Great guy. My dad uh, worked for him for forty. Two years, I think it was, and our families, you know, got got to be, uh, you know, close, and uh, so uh, the uh, the loss of Art Pactor was uh, for me in particular, uh, you know, uh, something that's uh, going to be he'll be he'll be missed, that's for sure. Right. Um, Sil, can you talk a little bit about the early years of the league, kind of when and how it started, how many teams there were, where they were located, that kind of stuff? Sure. Um, <clears throat> The league was an outgrowth of this little boom, mini boomlet of uh, uh, basketball uh, leagues emerging after World War II. You had uh, soldiers coming back from the war. They had a little money in their pockets. Many of them had played college basketball. And they were looking for a place to play. And, and people wanted entertainment. They wanted, they wanted to have fun. Um, you know, the war was over. They wanted a good time. So you had, you know, some pro leagues that were in existence, the National Basketball League, NBL, ABL, American Basketball League. And you had a bunch of semi-pro leagues that were kind of rough and tumble and uh, um, you know, refereeing was kind of suspect at best. So the owners of the Eastern League were trying to, you know, some of these guys have been in semi-pro leagues. Some of them hoped maybe to get into one of the, the, the larger leagues that was forming. Uh, so they decided to form their own league. It was uh, six teams, all eastern Pennsylvania, uh, Allentown, Hazleton, Reading, a um, uh, few others, plus one in upstate New York, Binghamton, which played a few games and then ended up uh, moving to Pottsville, PA. Um, and it was basically a regional league 
that was better than the semi-pro leagues, but not, you know, not as quite as good as, as, as the existing leagues, plus one that formed in 1946, the BAA, which eventually merged with the NBL to become the NBA. Um, so it was sort of this in-between league. And uh, mostly local players, Pennsylvania area players. And then by the early 50s, it, uh, it, it started to get more talent. And one of the big things that really uh, brought top-tier talent to the Eastern League and made it um, really the, the second-best league around was the gambling scandal in the 1950s. So Jay can tell you a little bit about that and how it influenced the uh, league's, league's talent. Yeah, sure. Um, in in uh, 1951, uh, college basketball got jolted by a, uh, a, a couple of uh, gambling uh, scandals, I guess you could say. Uh, first one, more than 30 players, including um, some of the greatest players in the country, Sherman White from Long Island University. The, the, uh, these 30 players were found guilty of taking bribes from gamblers in exchange for um, them fixing games. These were young kids. They were um, looking for, you know, some extra cash. Didn't think that by um, uh, fixing a game that their team wouldn't win. Wait, let me back up on this. I'm sorry. This is, this is sorry about this. That's all right. Okay. Um, they, these were young kids and they served jail time. Or some other kind of got some other kind of uh, uh, of uh, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, they were they were punished in some other kind of You know of that way, kind right? of thing. I don't know. Right. Um, and, but the the deal with that was not all the players implicated in the scandal were banned from the NBA for life. That's not for one season. They were banned for life. So Sherman White best player in the country. He couldn't go to play in the, in the NBA. What did he do? He joined the Hazleton team in the Eastern league, immediately became a top scorer and Sherman white being in the league and having his connections, he drew great players to the Eastern league similar. And, and this was not, not, this is, uh, yeah, this, this also involves gambling. Jack Molinas, great player out of Columbia. He, after graduating from there, he joined the NBA uh, Fort Wayne Pistons. And soon he was also banned from the NBA because he bet on 10 games that the Piston, Pistons played in. Um, and he, he bet for them to win. He thought that was okay, but, but uh, not the NBA didn't agree. And the, here again, the NBA banned Molinas for life. And uh, he joined the Eastern League. And Molinas brought other good players with him. And then there's the sad case of Bill Spivey. He was a uh, superstar out of the University of Kentucky. I mean, Spivey could do anything. A seven-footer, but he could run, jump, score, whatever. He was supposed to be the next best center in the NBA after George Mikan and before Will Chamberlain. But he was accused of taking money. Actually, he didn't take money. He didn't gamble. Uh, but the NBA still banned him for life. And where did Bill Spivey go to play? In the Eastern League. And all these great players helped raise the quality of the league and, and, uh, and its players. That was, is a real turning point for the Eastern League. Yeah, I, as I told you guys before we came on the air, I was really struck by how much talent was in the Eastern League. Um, you know, I, 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 I love basketball history. Um, and have read a great deal about it. And, you know, over the years, I've, in different things I've read, I've, I've heard about the Eastern League in passing. You mentioned Molinas. I'd, I'd read a little bit about Molinas and knew he went to the Eastern League. Um, I know I knew uh, I've read about Cleo Hill's story, um, who right. was considered a tremendous talent. And I knew he went to the Eastern League. I heard an interview uh, a few years ago with Mike Reardon. Um, it was an right. interview where he was talking about, I'm a huge Knicks fan, and he was talking about the... Uh, the 1970 Knicks championship team. And he referenced the fact that the Knicks had drafted him and basically sent him to the Eastern league to hone his skills, much like, um, you know, much, much like NBA teams use the G league now. And I was surprised. I didn't know 
that that type of thing took place. Um, but just back to my initial point, I was just so impressed with the level of talent. I mean, some other former Knicks that I knew of, Eddie Mast, Hawthorne Wingo, right, um, right. the great Paul Arizon played in the league, right. um, and just other names, you know, Jim Beheim, et cetera. Uh, right. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just the, the talent level in the league, particularly during the heyday of, you know, 1954 to 1967. And and within that, if you if you could touch a little bit about if you could touch a little bit on um, on the condition, the, the state of of black basketball players in the NBA and the quota system and, and how that played into the talent pool in the Eastern League. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you're exactly right. There were really three factors that contributed to the talent level being so high uh, in, in, in the Eastern League. One, uh, as Jay mentioned, you know, the uh, the gambling scandal, which brought some of the best players in the country, and Sherman White, who was an All-American and was the player of the year, actually, in 1951 in college basketball. He's banned from the NBA, so he, you know, he has to play in the Eastern League. Jack Malanus was a great player, great star, great talent. Uh, Spivey, um, on and on, Floyd Lane, Ed Warner, these were all great college players. They came. And it's not like there weren't really good players in the Eastern League before that, because you had Jack McCoskey, Jack Ramsey, Jerry Rulo, who Philadelphia fans will know right away. These were great Philadelphia area players. But the uh, the gambling scandal brought one group of players. Um, the fact that by the early by the mid nineteen fifties, all those pro leagues had kind of settled down the um, um, uh, NBL and the EAA merged to form the NBA. They eliminated some teams. The ABL folded. So there are really only eight, nine, ten at, at most NBA basketball teams, 10 players on a team. That means there's 180 to 100 players in the NBA total. Today, there's 450 players in the NBA. So, you know, do the math and you could do the comparison and you could see that there were just uh, 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 very few spots in the NBA. And there were still a lot of good players in the country. So the next best place for them to play was the Eastern League. So that brought a lot of players, really talented players, uh, into the Eastern League. Uh, the other thing, though, was race. Um, the NBA, uh, it formed in 1949, admitted its first African-American players in 1950, four players. After that, there was what most players, observers, writers, acknowledged was an informal, unwritten quota system, starting off with the first one and then maybe two African-American players per team by the late 50s, maybe three. Um, so that left a lot of great, talented African-American players really out of, uh, out of uh, any reasonable chance making the NBA or staying there. Um, so they ended up in the Eastern League, particularly when really great players like Sherman White, Jack Molinas, and others were playing there. So you had names, and I'll mention some of these players, you know, Hal King Lear, which is, is one of my favorite nicknames, King Lear yeah. from Temple. Great scorer, great college player at Temple, took his Temple team, I think it was 1955, Final Four. He, he played in the Eastern League. I think he scored 50 or more points, something like 13 times in seven years. Uh, awesome player. Wally Choice, who played at University of Indiana. Julius McCoy, Michigan State University. Uh, Stacey Arsenal, Tom Heenan. Now, these guys had opportunities to play in the NBA. Some of them did. Howlier played like three or four games. Heenan's was offered a contract, but they wouldn't guarantee it. Um, Stacey Arsenal played eight games in the NBA. But, you know, the um, NBA back then, the African-American players, it did take. They didn't want scorers. They wanted rebounders, guys who played defense, and guys who passed the ball. They wanted guys who did the, the gritty work. They didn't want their African-American players to be the stars of the team. The first real African-American star in the NBA was Elgin Baylor in the late 50s. So you had a lot of great scorers, Lear, McCoy, Choice. These are all great scorers. Richie Gaines out of Seton Hall. Tough, tough character. All these guys are playing in the Eastern League, and they are players who – in basketball fans from the 50s and 60s know these names. You were also getting a lot of the great New York City players, you know, Ali Sidon, Philadelphia players. And this is where Paul Harrison comes in. 
Uh, he played, he was the, one of the NBA greats in the 1950s, played for the Philadelphia Warriors. Um, in 1962, uh, his Philadelphia Warriors team moved to San Francisco. He had a job with IBM and, and basketball players were pro athletes weren't making great salaries back then. It made more financial sense for him to stay in Philadelphia, keep his job with IBM and play in the Eastern League on weekends then to move to San Francisco with the Warriors. So Paul Arizon ended his career with two years in the Eastern League. So he had really an awful lot of guys who would be in the NBA today with 450 players um, and without a color line who uh, were playing in the Eastern League in these small towns and small gyms right in front of the fans. And we were watching extraordinarily great players. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned some of the names. Jim Beheim was a very good college basketball player who could have been like a third or fourth guard in the NBA, but he wanted to play in the Eastern League so he could commute to back and forth to Syracuse where he was in, you know, starting his assistant coaching career. Hubie Brown was a good college player at Niagara. He played several years in the Eastern League until he got injured. Uh, Ray Scott, uh, who was an NBA great and eventually became a coach, he played in the Eastern League because he left college early and at that time uh, the NBA wasn't allowed to draft players until their college ca- class would have would have graduated. So he played three seasons in the NBA. So you in the Eastern League. So you had top level players for those three reasons who were all coming together and making the Eastern League really just an extraordinary, extraordinarily competitive and entertaining league to watch. Yeah, there was uh, there was something in your book uh, that I actually made note of because it it just. It got me thinking, which was that in, in 1955 and 56, the NBA had eight teams. Um, and as as you mentioned, maybe 100 players and just nine black players. So right. you think I started thinking if you think of like today's NBA, the 10th or 11th or 12th best black player in the in the in the world. Now you're talking about guys like Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving. You know, maybe Chris Paul is probably around in that range, and he's the best player on a team that's going to the finals. I mean, that is, there's some immense talent there that would that would have been playing in the Eastern League. Well, exactly right. I mean, uh, you said it. You know, uh, before there was Damian Lillard, 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 there was Hal King Lear, who was an awesome shooter. Before there was Elgin Baylor, you know, there was Wally Choice, uh, who who was just a tough, you know, six five forward who had all, every move you can imagine, plus a great jump shot. Um, you know, you had Julius McCoy, who was a 6'2 um, uh, uh, post, post player, who had these incredible shots, off balance, twisting, turning, hook shots, baby hooks, scoop shots, you name it. He could just find a way. He was big, a stocky fellow, too, and just used that body of his to maneuver into position and get shots off against taller players. You, you had guys, Hubie Brown said it best. Hubie was the one who planted that idea in our heads. He said, just think of it this way. You had 80 players in the NBA back then and 450 today. Do the math. A lot of the guys who were in the Eastern League would have been all-stars. And there's no doubt about it. And then you, you, you factor in the, you know, the color line, the quota system. You nailed it, Paul. I mean, there were great players in the Eastern League uh, who, you know, in a different time, John Chaney. And uh, John Chaney uh, was a great guard. He was a slick ball handler. He was very fast, and he played in-your-face defense. Bob Ryan, who grew up in New Jersey as a huge East League fan, uh, and who he talked to, you know, the great basketball writer for the Boston Globe, he wrote the foreword for our book. And he was he's as enthusiastic an Eastern League fan as we are. <laughs> uh, Bob Ryan said that John Chaney would have been a 10-year NBA guard. But, you know, people don't know that because he wasn't in the NBA, you know, back then. So, yeah, we saw some great players. I mean, it was it was extraordinary talent. And one of the great things, one of the satisfying things about this project for us is getting to talk to some of these players and and finally their stories being told. You know, I mean, they didn't get that recognition that that they were entitled to. But now we're telling their story. And, you know, we've talked to some of them since the book came out and they're so excited. You know, they're sending the book to their friends and family and people are saying, wow, I didn't know that you were such a great player. I didn't know you were so talented. And and this book means a lot to the guys we're talking to. 
because finally they're getting the recognition they deserve. And that's that's just been so satisfying. I I thought you <clears throat> excuse me, I thought you guys did a great job in the book of setting the scene of you know why the Eastern League resonated so much with with fans like yourselves and and Bob Ryan. Um, Jay, can you talk a little bit about you know why why the, the the towns and the people in those small towns connected so much with the teams? Oh sure, um, I mean just think about it. Uh, in the nineteen fifties and sixties, uh, there's probably one NBA game on TV all week. No no cable television. Um, but the Scranton fans or the fans throughout the league, uh, they could go on a weekend night and see amazing players, great pro basketball players, you know, right in front of their eyes. And uh, this brought tremendous pride to, to the, uh, the, these, these, these towns. Um, the, the, the people, the, the fans there, they, they thought of the players as their own, their own team. And um, players went up and down from the NBA. That's another, uh, well, we, we talked about that, like with, with Mike Reardon. Um, players went up and down, and that gave the Eastern League fans uh, a further um, uh, reality that they were seeing what we've been calling the second best pro basketball in the world. And um, they, were, they were vocal fans. They were uh, – um, oh, also the uh, – one of the examples that, I, that I've, I've got a kick out of is the uh, little town of Sunbury, Pennsylvania. I think maybe 10 or 15,000 people lived in Sunbury in those years. Maybe even today, I'm not sure. But um, they, they were able to uh, you know, field competitive teams year after year that the fans loved. And um, that's, uh, that was part of uh, you know, the... Uh, the, uh, the fun of going to those games and seeing these tremendous players. Yeah. And, and, and we should, add, I'd like to add also that, which you guys discuss in the book that, um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't the quality of leagues overseas, you know, in Europe, for example, in the 1950s or sixties that there are now. So that option, you know, you, you weren't having great players go explore that option either. So it was really, there was after the NBA, there was this one other place where you could play. And and one of the themes of the book, which is really, you know, was heartwarming, um, was it came across how much the guys in that league just love playing basketball. Right. I mean, most of them, they weren't. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them, maybe even most of them had a dream of getting to the NBA still. But most of them just they love playing it. They love playing the game. And they did so for. Uh, little money and in in you know some difficult conditions. Um, so Jay, I wonder if you could talk yeah. a little bit about um, the conditions. You know what 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 players had to endure to play in the Eastern League. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. Well, one thing every every player had to uh, either be ready and willing to drive on weekends or um, or join a uh, carpool, which the players would, 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 uh, form. And, um, this is, uh, on the weekends, um, in addition to these players jobs during the week. So that, that was, a uh, um, an angle, but the interesting thing was the the snow and the, and the ice on the mountain roads that every player had to, uh, deal with. We've, we've had many players who told us like, for example, Joe Lally, who was a guard for Scranton, he said that he fell asleep twice at the wheel, almost got killed both times, and um, uh, glad he's alive. There were other uh, um, Walker Banks um, and uh, Charlie Chris talked about uh, the uh, snow and 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 you know zooming off into a, uh, a snowbank and and almost getting getting killed. So yeah, the uh, the snow and ice was the big deal there. Uh, the drive home on a weekend to or from uh, the weekends was uh, could, could could be crazy, especially if there uh, uh, there's snow. But also, at the games ended let's say at uh, eleven o'clock at night. Players start out there to get home wherever they live, and usually it's like uh, you know two, three, four, five hour drive. 
So players had to be, um, you know, able to uh, to deal with that. One of the interesting things was these those those makeshift carpools, and um, they had uh, the rule that one guy had to be uh, sitting at, sitting w- with the driver to keep him awake. So it was just a a, a strange not strange. It was just a um, thing that all the Eastern League players had to deal with, and you know the wives also. Uh, many of the wives came to the games too. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to the Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Um, I, I love reading the book about some of the crazy stories that, that took place and, and, and some of the unique characters as well um, that play in the league. Uh, I had to laugh at, at John Postley, the guy who supposedly killed a man in, in prison and everybody on the team was afraid of him. I mean, that's like a, you know, it's like something out of, uh, it was like one of the characters in, in Major League, you know, seeing out of a movie or something. Um Sil, did you have a, a, a favorite character or a favorite story that you came across from the book? Gosh, there are so many. I mean, uh, let me think. I mean, you're right. The League did have an awful lot of characters. Um, and and I, I hesitate to say that because when I mentioned that to Ray Scott, he said, you know, when you talk about characters, it sounds like you're talking about entertainers and clowns. And he said, and I don't want people to think that that was the, the thrust of the, the League. These are serious competitive basketball players. He said, yes, there were some characters, but really had more people with character. So I want to get that point across. Right. But that said, yeah, the league really did have some characters. Joe Crawford used to say, you know, it was wild. And, you know, Joe Crawford from Philadelphia, the former NBA ref, has this great way of talking and used to say it was wild. You know, you'd have fights, you'd have fights on the floor, you'd have fights in the stands, you'd have people in the stands fighting with the players. So, so that kind <laughs> of stuff did happen. It was, you know, the minor leagues. And you're right. Uh, you, you did have characters like that. Um, the owners were characters. Arthur Pachter, who we've mentioned, uh, was, you know, the red hour back of the league, right down to, you know, lighting up his victory cigar at the end of the bench when the, when, when a victory was secured. Uh, George Lehman, the great three-point shooter, uh, who most people said was, you know, just intense. Uh, I guess that's a good way to describe it. Uh, he was one of the characters of the league. Um, my, my favorite story, you know, I'm, I, I think my favorite story actually is an Arthur Pachter story um, uh, involving the referee Dick Pavetta, who was also, you know, the Hall of Fame referee Dick Pavetta. He and Crawford started off in the Eastern League to get some experience and then they worked their way up to the NBA. But, you know, you had um, uh, team owners, basically the teams, the home team is responsible for paying. The uh, salary, the, the 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 fee for the refs. So uh, you know, there were I don't know how many refs, but of course the refs and the and, and the players and the owners all knew each other. And um, you know, there were history. I mean, there were some refs who supposedly did like some teams, some refs who were homers. Usually, the home team won in the NBA because there were times when you know, referee, if they made a bad call, could get threatened by the fans. But, you know, be that as it may, Art Packer remembers a time when Bavetta was officiating 
and he wasn't really happy with some of Bavetta's calls. So after the game was over, he wrote two checks, one for Bavetta and one for the other referee. He went down to the uh, to the uh, referee's locker room, knocked on the door, walked in, thanks boys, and handed a check to the other ref. And then he took out Bavetta's check, took out his cigar lighter, and lit it on fire. <laughs> and, and I don't think things like that happen in the NBA, but it's a classic Eastern League story. So that's one of my favorite stories. Um, uh, and, and there's so many that, that go on and on. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, Paul, can I, can, I, can I maybe give you some of some, uh, yes, my please. favorite things? Or? Go ahead, yeah. Great, thank you very much. Um, back to the Sunbury uh, team, Sunbury High School, small gym, and it's known for being a very quirky gym. The uh, basket at one end was so close to the wall that, as, as Eddie Mast, who you mentioned, Eddie Mast said, you had to go in for a layup vertically. Uh, it was crazy. Richie Cornwall said the same thing. If, if you scored on a layup, um, you're probably going to hit the wall. Players are always talking about that. It just, uh, you know, inches uh, uh, off the, off the, uh, the wall to, uh, to, to throw in the ball in bounds. Crazy for that. Also, at the same 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 gym, Sunbury, there was a an obstacle, a big stage that the players would sit on during the game, right next to the court. And we were told that you know players had to run around this stage uh, to to uh, keep keep the game going. Um, Richie Cornwall questioned whether the um, uh, three point lines and the half court lines were actually written, done by anybody at that at that Sunbury gym. He he uh, he just didn't think that that, that was the case. And um, another different venue, the Kingston Armory in uh, Kingston, Pennsylvania, really you know Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, um, big big. And uh, John Cheney said that similar to what Richie Cornwell is talking about, that he when he would dribble the ball after you know he threw that being thrown in the uh, court seemed like it was like way, way, way bigger than the average uh, basketball court just kept dribbling and dribbling. He also said that, the, that it was so cold in there that um, so the big, the, the gym was so big that the, the, the cold didn't stay in the gym. And here's my last thing on, on, on uh, uh, the gyms itself. The, at the Kingston armory players found this amazing. There was only one shower in one shower for both teams. So players would race to get out of that shower after the game. And there were long lines of just just to get in the one shower. And um, so those are my my favorite stories about this, uh, the the small gyms that these guys played in. But also, if I can just give you one, because Sylv gave you a a Dick Bavetta story. I've got another one, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. Go ahead. Sure. and also, this was one night Bavetta was in uh, at a game in Sunbury. Uh, and he made a call late in the game against the Sunbury Mercury's Sunbury team lost. And the fans went nuts. The fans charged. Bavetta had to make a mad dash to the locker room. He got in there right before the fans were able to. Uh, but they kept at it. They kept at it. He was... He went down to a basement and um, he found a couple of milk boxes. And so he to try to get out of out of there, he used the milk boxes to climb out the back window of the gym. And he finally got to his car and he started driving out of the parking lot um, and a policeman stopped him. And he thought, oh, God, what, what, what's this going to be about? Well, apparently he didn't have, Dick Bavetta didn't have his lights on. So Dick Bavetta thanked him and so on, kept going. But then the police officer saw, as Dick is pulling away, New York license plate. And he puts two and two together and he realized, here's the, here's the ref. And the uh, policeman started yelling um, to the people who were, by this point, the, 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 uh, the fans who were uh, rioting almost, uh, but they were outside at that point. Dick Bavetta was able to uh, go past them, but he said that he he uh, he barely made it out. 
So that's one of, uh, Dick Pavetta has a ton of stories, but that's my, my favorite. That's some great stuff. Paul, I got, I got a couple more if you've got time for a couple more Please, stories. Please, go ahead, yeah. Because uh, you had mentioned John Postley, right. uh, who sadly died um, you know, in, in, in the Rucker League. Uh, not the Rucker League, in the Baker League in Philadelphia. Um, but while, was, while playing? While playing, yes. I didn't know that. Well, he did. He, he, he was, gosh, in his 30s, I think, um, when it happened. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Stan Pavlik who was also from Philadelphia and uh, played on the Wilkes-Barre Barons with, with Postley. They were, you know, became friends. Um, and uh, Stan said, you know, as mean as John Postley looked and, and notwithstanding the reputation that he killed a man in prison and that he had this huge scar that went from, you know, his shoulder all the way down, down his back, um, which supposedly was, you know, it was it, 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 he got that in a fight in prison, which is, is how he ended up killing a man. That's that's the legend, at least. Uh, but he and and Postley played in the Baker League together, and Stan said that Postley, you know, threw the inbounds pass to him. Pollock caught it, turned up court, turned around, and next thing you knew, Postley was on the ground and he was gone. So wow. very sad, very sad. But he was a terrific, fierce player and a great rebounder. And every year he'd be among the top two or three rebounders in, in the Eastern League. Well, Stan was saying that his wife used to come to the games uh, and Stan and Postley and his wife would drive up together, uh, sometimes with other players, uh, sometimes with the coach, Stan Novak, who was also a Philadelphian. And um, um, his wife would keep statistics. So after the game was over, Postley would immediately go up to, to Pollock's, Pavel's wife and say, how many rebounds did I get? How many rebounds did I get? Well, he was a smart lady, and she didn't want to make John mad. Hmm. So she'd always pad his statistics a little. She'd always add one or two or a few more. And, of course, her statistics always show that he got more rebounds than the official score statistics. Supposedly, he would take her sheet, her stat sheet, and he'd go over to the official score, and he'd say, no, no, yeah, you know, that 12, no, she has me down for 15. you got to give me 15. Well, no one was going to argue with John Postley. You know, the guy was 6'5", 6'6", 250 pounds of solid muscle, sculpted like an Adonis. Right. So no one argued with John Postley. That's and, great. Uh, uh, so, so it, you know, he was a great rebounder, but I suspect that his stats and, and, and maybe some of the other stats in the league uh, are a little inflated. I'm not going to vouch for their accuracy. <laughs> um, so, so there, there, you know, there's lots of stories like that. Um, and, and, and the other one uh, that I wanted to share was involving George Lehman, who was a tough, fierce competitor and, uh, very confident of his shot. He was a great shooter. Lehman played a number of years in the NBA and ABA, and he was great in the ABA. He was one of its, the first ABA's first great three point shooters. Uh, and he had no fear, uh, never hesitated to put up a shot. Uh, many people credit uh, George Lehman with being the first person to come down the floor on a three-on-one fast break and launch a, a, a three-pointer. And we actually have some video footage, someone's home video, of George Lehman coming down the floor on a three-on-one and shooting up a three-pointer. Wow. Which was, you know, I mean, it's done all the time in the NBA now. But back in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, that was considered a bad shot. No one did it. But George Lehman and possibly George Blaney, because because um, Bob Ryan says George Blaney also did it too. Uh, Blaney, who ended up coaching Holy Cross and a number of other places, also played in the Eastern League. But um, apparently uh, some of his teammates, uh, Lehman's teammates, didn't like the idea that, that Lehman would come down the floor and launch his three-pointers, <laughs> uh, even if they were open. So some of the uh, players went up to – he was playing at Trenton, uh, on Trenton at the time. The coach was Howie Landa, who was a great Eastern League player and – was John Cheney's backcourt mate uh, in Sunbury for many, many years. And they became great friends. And uh, Howie became a, a great junior college coach and actually coached UNLV very briefly as an interim coach. But Howie was coaching the Trenton Colonials at the time. And some of the guys were coming up to, to him and say, Howie, you got to talk to Lehman. You got to talk to George. You got to tell him he can't keep firing up those three pointers. So Lehman said, so Landis said, okay, I'll handle it. So he said, I, I knew how to handle George. I said, George, you're a great shooter. You may be the greatest shooter ever. No one shoots better than you. But when you come down the floor on a three-on-one 
and you've got a guy on either side of you open for a layup. Pass him the ball. And George uttered the words. He said, Howie, my blank, blank three-pointer is better than their blank, blank two-point layup, (laughs) which at the time was a funny and revolutionary statement, but right now reflects NBA strategy. So George Lehman was like, you know, two generations ahead of his time. But, uh, you know, you, you just go on. There were people that were, these were great, serious basketball players, all confident in their abilities. And uh, you have great stories like that and great people. Yeah, that, those, that's some great stuff. Um, still, why do you think the Eastern League wasn't able to establish a more formal relationship with the NBA? Um, great question. I'm glad you asked that one because it actually goes back to, to something you were saying. I'll bring that in about um, uh, acting as a, as, as a feeder league for the NBA. That was really one of the hopes of the Eastern League. They always hoped they would establish a formal minor league system with the top tier uh, pro league. They, you know, at, at the time there were several pro leagues, the BAA, NBL, and ABL when they were formed. But um, they hoped that they would become a minor league system and get financial assistance. It might have happened in the 50s, but then when the NBA banned the, the guys involved in the, in the point-shaving scandal and the Eastern League, after hesitating at first but eventually letting them in, um, uh, the NBA didn't want anything to do with the Eastern League. Uh, so the chances of them developing a formal minor league relationship ended right there. In fact, the NBA and Eastern League used to play exhibition games, and the NBA cut those out for a number of years after the Eastern League left the gamblers in. After that, I think um, it just, the NBA was actually able to get the benefit of uh, using the Eastern League as a minor league system without having to, an informal minor league system without having to pay them any money. Mm -hmm. Because like some teams, like the the New York Knicks, as you observed, developed this uh, informal farm system relationship with the Allentown Jets. So uh, the first, you know, player I think it was Brendan McCann from the Knicks who went down to the uh, to, to the Allentown Jets, but he had Tom Riker as you mentioned, Mike Reardon, Arthur and Wingo, Eddie Mass, Milt Williams, you know, a bunch of guys that kind of shuttled back and forth between Allentown and, and, and the Knicks. Other teams developed sort of informal relationships, or you know. Some of the NBA coaches were former, uh, uh, or some of the uh, Eastern League coaches were former NBA coaches or scouts or players. So there were connections in the basketball community saying, hey, I got this guy. Can you take him for a year? Let him get some experience. We'll bring him up. You know, and maybe they helped a little with the salary, but the, the NBA was getting the benefit of having the Eastern League there for players to go down and work their way up. Um, without having to provide, you know, a, a formal financial support. Uh, eventually, when the Eastern League uh, uh, kind of transitioned into the Continental Basketball Association, uh, they were able to convince the NBA that it made financial sense for them to develop uh, a, a more formal uh, financial support system. And that did happen, but it never happened during the Eastern League's existence, which is which is unfortunate. Um might have kept the league going, but the league the league was sort of running out of steam. I mean, it had to uh, it had to uh, really uh, go into bigger cities, which is what happened with the Continental Basketball Association. Right. Um, I want to ask you guys what what, in your opinion, is is the legacy of the Eastern League? Jay, maybe we could start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I I think there are three things that stand out as far as the legacy of the league, one was the three-pointer, as Syl talked about, and George Lehman and so on. Um, the, the Eastern League did not introduce the three-pointer, but it advanced the three-pointer to uh, beyond, well, way beyond what the, um, uh, another, the uh, I can't remember the, the name of the, uh, the guys. Uh, so what's the... Uh, the old... Uh, Abe Saperstein started had, had the American Basketball League for two years, and right. they started the the three point shot. Right, right. Uh, but it was like subdued at that point. Uh, the, the league that league only lasted for that one year, I think, and then the Eastern League picked up on the three pointer, and it, it 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 just 
made it much more of a part of the base, uh, uh, basketball uh, history, as well as the 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 the, um, uh, the um, uh, um, excuse me, let me stop here. Um, okay, let, okay, I'll, I'll I'll stop I'll stop here and uh, I'll go to the next the next thing. I'm sorry about this. That's Paul. all right. Go ahead. Um, the other thing about the legacy was the wide open play, the up tempo play, the style of play, and that got copied by the ABA when the ABA took took so many of the great players of the league. Um, so that's one of the other things that I think for for a legacy of the league, I think that should be included. And then the other one is the racial uh, the racial uh, situation. You know, until the mid mid sixties, the NBA, you know didn't want to have many of the black players. Um, the East league became pretty much what the, you know, the, the Negro league was for baseball. And uh, it allowed these great, great players to play at a high level. And uh, the Eastern league um, also gave the chance to this fans to interact with them. You know, the, the white um, small town uh, people who go to these games, um, they could, they could, after the game, hang hang out and talk to players and so on. And it, it, it there was a bond that was formed between the players and, um, and the black players and the uh, the fans. So the, the racial legacy is there. Um, part of the stories that um, we have in in the book about the uh, the, the race issues was the number of um, times that players found themselves uh, discriminated against, and um, that's something that uh, I've, I've particularly found interesting. We have stories that, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, players going to try for, uh, uh, Wade Bellamy goes goes for, for a, uh, uh, an apartment, he told we don't, we don't, uh, we don't rent to uh, coloreds. Um, uh, then, then, so, that, okay, so I think I'll stop it there, but um, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Thanks very much for, for that. Yeah, sure. Sil, do you have anything to add about the legacy of the league? Yeah, I mean, I think JJ hit it. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I think players who played in the Eastern League and were familiar with basketball in the 60s, um, you know, will will agree that a lot of today's NBA game kind of started at the Eastern League, that fast pace, you know, above the rim play. And that was going on in the Eastern League in the 50s and 60s. Because the Eastern League was taking, you know, the style of play from the Rucker League and the Baker League, the Rucker League in New York and the Baker League in Philly, and it, it was playing it on weekends, you know, in the small gyms in the Eastern League. So, so the modern NBA game really kind of got its start in the Eastern League. That, that's part of it. Uh, that it served the purpose of the Negro Leagues and gave, you know, a professional opportunity to great African American players. That, that's also part of it. And just that history, that connection. Um, that the teams had with the, the the people in in the individual cities. You know, one of the things you know, Jay and I and our buddies, uh, Jay's older brother and his buddies, were huge Eastern League fans, and we were geeks. You know, we we loved the Eastern League. It meant so much to us. We thought, you know, we were special. And one of the things we found in working on this project was that the experience we had in Scranton with our team. Is the same thing that the kids growing up in Wilkes-Barre and Trenton and Allentown and Hazelton and Sunbury and Williamsport, they had with their teams, you know, um, because there's this Facebook page of Eastern League fans that now has over 1,200 members. And we've been active on that. And that's where we got some contacts with some players we talked to. We talked to close to 40 former players and officials and fans in, in doing the book. So, you know, we talked to a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the people who were involved in the Eastern League. And just seeing the love and affection and, and and enthusiasm for the league among people who grew up in all these other cities. And my favorite story is, is Bob Ryan, you know, the you know ESPN commentator and NBA analyst, you know, uh, extraordinaire. And you know, someone told me, gee, I can't remember who, but someone told me, you know, Bob Ryan, the sports writer, he he mentions the Eastern League. You might want to contact him. So, you know, I sent an email. I, I went online. I looked at Boston Globe. Bob Ryan. I found his email address. I sent him an email and said, hi, I heard that you knew something about the Eastern League. I'm working on a book. I'd like to talk to you if you have an opportunity. Within five minutes, I got a phone call from Bob Ryan. 
saying, you know, giving me Wally Choice's stat line for the very first game he saw in 1961. You know, it's like 10 for 14, 12 for 12. He, he, he memorized the stat line for Wally Choice that first game. And it took me, you know, 30 seconds to realize that Bob Ryan was an even bigger Eastern League fan than Jay and I were. <laughs> and he loved it. And we talked several times. I mean, he, he, he mentioned names, you know, players. York Larice, remember him? And we just throw names out there. So those of us in Eastern League cities who experienced the Eastern League and got, uh, you know, to watch it, we really had something special. And, you know, we appreciate it more and more now. I mean, it was, it was a, a moment in time. Uh, the players who went through it, so many of them went on to become coaches. Uh, I mean, you got Bayheim, of course, George Raveling, George Blaney, uh, high school coaches, Big Bill Green, one of the meanest guys, you know, reputedly in the Eastern League became a, a legendary high school principal in New York City, straightening out some of the, the toughest high schools in the Bronx. So many of these guys went on to, to great careers as teachers and coaches. Tommy Hemans became the head of the New York City Public School Athletic League. It goes on and on and on that these were, as you said, extraordinary people and great athletes and great players. But so many of them, and that's one of the things we bring out in the book, uh, lived productive and uh, important lives and made great contributions to their communities after their playing days were over. And just sharing that story about what a, you know, an extraordinary group of, of individuals these were who overcame obstacles in many ways, the travel, the inability to make the NBA, uh, and just went on to become, you know, wonderful people. Uh, so that's part of the legacy too, just the individuals. As Ray Scott said, you know, people of character. And yes, uh, we found that out. He was absolutely right. So, uh, yeah, very gratifying just to, just to be part of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the coaches. I was struck reading it by how many, you know, big, big time coaches, you know, John Chaney and Hubie Brown, are a couple of those that we mentioned, right. a lot of really great coaches came out of that league um, right. and, and right. referees and referees as well. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, in addition to Dick Bavetta, you have Mendy Rudolph. Right. And uh, yeah. And we talk about Joe Crawford. Yeah. I mean, th- those are right. legendary referees. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's it, you know, and, uh, not many people were aware that these guys all traveled through the Eastern League on their way up. So uh, no. glad we could bring that out. Um, once again, the, the name of Sill and Jay's book is Boxed Out of the NBA, Remembering the Eastern Professional Basketball League. Um, and uh, guys, I, I, I've taken enough of your time. I'll, I'll get you out of here with one last question that I like to ask all of my guests. And that is, what is your all-time favorite sports book? Wow. Uh, all-time favorite sports book. I'd have to say either Boys of Summer uh, by Roger Kahn, which was just awesome, or a little-known book that most people haven't heard of, which is called If I Never Get Back, which is this great book about um, the early years of professional baseball and how baseball uh, grew out of the Civil War, which I didn't realize that it, some form of baseball was being played in Civil War camps, both on the North and the South. And that after the war was over and um, professional baseball started forming, um, a lot of the rivalries uh, between Northerners and Southerners were being played out on the baseball fields. Um, so it's, it's a real interesting part of baseball history that I knew nothing about until I read that book. Interesting. How about you, Jay? Yeah, I think if I could, uh, narrow it down to one book, it's a, it's another basketball book, but it's a book that written by Terry Pluto about the ABA loose balls. Yeah. And I think a ton of research was done for that book. Great stories. Um, just mind-boggling how many uh, facts that he, he he was able to come up with for the years of, that the uh, ABA was in existence. And it's funny, th- that's, uh, that, that's my candidate. Yeah, great, great choice. As is Boys of Summer, I'll have to check out uh, if I never get back. Um, yeah, I think you'll like that. Yeah. 
Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on. As, as I told you at the outset, I love the book. And I think anybody who's interested in, in the history of basketball, um, it, it's, it's, a mu- it's really a must read. Uh, I learned so much about, about the game and about the people who, who played in that league and the people who love that league. And I just I think you guys did a great job. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Paul. We really appreciate it. We can talk about the book on and on and on and appreciate your listening. Sure. Yes, thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks, guys.